Six and a half billion tickets sold for a lottery that has a top prize of $64 million? <laughs> Who the hell's playing that garbage lottery? Yeah, that's a really good point. Right. That's just, that's the dumbest lottery I've ever heard of. Like, well, you're, no. Oh, man. Somebody has pushed Robert's math button and he is just upset about it. I am. <laughs> Welcome to Pennies and Popcorn the show about real money lessons from the world of TV and movies. With your hosts, Carla Cash and Robert Davidson, a couple of personal finance geeks and movie lovers. Welcome to today's episode of Pennies and Popcorn. We're discussing a program that you may not have seen, the 1994 romantic comedy, It Could Happen to You, starring Nicolas Cage, Bridget Fonda. Rosie Perez. Lil Bess Stanley Tucci. Yeah. This is a movie I hadn't seen before until you recommended it for the show. And so we checked it out. And I have to say, I love rom-coms. I'm willing to admit that. There are a lot of great ones from that era. (laughs) I'm not sure this was one of them. Yeah, it's no You've Got Mail. That's for sure. It's got some shortcomings. The most prominent of which I would say is probably just Nicolas Cage being Nicolas Cage. It's just not my favorite actor in any role, but you know, the movie has some qualities to recommend it. And I will say that even though this is not like the most scintillating feature film of all time, and you may not have even seen it, I would still listen to this episode because you really don't need to have seen the movie to appreciate the really great money clips that we're going to play from the show. Yeah, you're right, Carla. When you suggested it, I did not realize how horrible an experience it would be to watch the fo- the film. <laughs> but there are quite a lot of topics that are relevant, and we could have done probably a multi-part episode on this. I think there's a few things mm-hmm. that we're cutting pretty short just to make sure we aren't a, a six-hour podcast. Yep, yep. Don't worry, guys. We're not doing that. So this movie um, is from 1994. It's based on a true story. Yeah. So I have to imagine the true story was better because <laughs> what a brutal movie. So as as we say, it's a true story. If you don't know what the story is, the basic plot premise is there's a New York City cop who meets a New York City waitress. He goes into her restaurant one day and he doesn't have enough money to leave a tip for her. So he tells her, I tell you what, I've got this lottery ticket and if I win, I'll split the winnings with you. How about that instead of a tip? Um, and yeah, that actually did happen in real life. It was actually a cop and it was actually a waitress. Unlike, well, I was going to say, but didn't they just agree to buy a ticket together? Yes, that is correct. In real life, there was no like, well, I, I think it actually was as part of leaving it as, as a tip for her, but it was an actual agreement which is not exactly what happens in like the movie. They had a long-standing relationship. Like he was a regular and yeah. she obviously worked there for a while. Yeah. And I'm really sorry to burst your romance bubble, but in real life, there was no romance between the cop and the waitress. They were just good friends, which actually I think is much sweeter and nicer. So so in the movie, Nicolas Cage is the cop. He's married to Rosie Perez. They are like high school sweethearts or something. They've been together for quite a long time. Then you got Bridget Fonda. She is the waitress and she is estranged from her husband, Stanley Tucci. I have to add that Stanley Tucci in this is one of my favorite forms of Stanley Tucci. I remember him from being a little kid as the villain in Beethoven. (laughs) 
and he's like kind of the same guy here. It's the same kind of era. It's not yeah. it's not Stanley Tucci from The Devil Wears Prada or from Julie and Julia or, or any of those other roles where he's sophisticated and likable. Yeah, just an incredible human. It's it's villain Stanley Tucci, which you don't see very often. Yeah, he's he did a good job with those villains back in the day. Yeah. So as we talk about some of the, the plot elements, I, I think it's important to note that Nicolas Cage ends up winning the lottery and he ends up splitting the ticket with uh, Bridget Fonda, with Yvonne, that's her character's name. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole bunch of relationship problems between uh, Nicolas Cage and Rosie Perez. Uh, I think Charlie and Muriel are their character names. Yep. And the, I guess the movie is all about reconciling that. But forget all the rom-com drama that goes on in the movie. <laughs> I think there's more to talk about in, in the money elements of things. Yeah, so many great money points to talk about. So let's go ahead and dive right into our first clip. We get to know Muriel, Nicolas Cage's wife, in this clip a little bit better. And she has a lot of thoughts that are highly related to money. Let's listen to what she has to say. I don't know. I mean, if he was a detective or an undercover cop, at least he would have some decent clothes, you know? But that's not for him. He's got to wear that uniform. I feel for you, honey, because you got driving ambition. I know. I never pushed him enough. I mean, if he was on the take, at least mm-hmm. I would say, okay, mm-hmm. he has initiative. My sister was married to a cop for 10 years. It's a no-win situation. Either they're honest and you're broke, or they're crooks and they never come home. So your sister, what's she do? She left the cop and married an electrician. That's your real money. <laughs> I'm running out of patience. I tell you, I'm a person who needs money. It's kind of funny because they portray Nicolas Cage, Charlie, as this neighborhood good guy. Yeah. Right? He's hanging out, playing stickball. Stick yeah, hanging out in the street with the, the neighborhood kids, trying to give them a good time. He's ready to, seemingly ready to expand their family and, you know, live a, a fairly traditional life. Whereas Rosie Perez, she's working as a hairdresser. And I think she's talking to one of her clients in this scene. Mm-hmm. She is kind of fed up with that standard lifestyle. Yeah, she is all about the big bucks. She wants the finer things in life. And, you know, in the movie, she is portrayed as the villain for wanting these things and not appreciating Nicolas Cage for the good-hearted guy that he is portrayed as in the movie. And I have a lot of sympathy with that approach, but, you know, there's nothing wrong with wanting the finer things in life. A lot of people do. And... And in some ways, that's kind of what makes the world go round. If everybody were kind of frugal homebodies, which is more like what you and I are, there wouldn't be nearly as many like restaurants in the world. And there wouldn't be as many nightclubs and, you know, it, variety is the spice of life. So there's nothing wrong with wanting to really enjoy the finer things in life. But what I think is very wrong with the situation is that these two people in this marriage, Charlie and Muriel, seem to not have very good communication skills when it comes to talking about money and what what it means to them and what they want to do with it and what they want to do with their lives. It seems like they didn't talk about it. I mean, obviously they were high school sweethearts, so maybe they got together at a younger time before they really thought about what they wanted out of life. But it seems like they, as they've evolved, they haven't talked about it much after that, which is crazy. Yeah. 
it is not a good situation to be in when you are on such a radically different page in terms of what you want out of life. I think back to the relationship that we have. We weren't high school sweethearts, but we were college sweethearts. I was almost legal drinking age. Almost. And I mean, yeah, I've said this so many times. I think there's so much luck involved when you get together with someone at that young of an age. And it's definitely a gamble. You're not sure who people are actually going to grow up to be as they become fully formed adults. You and I got very, very lucky that we grew in the same direction. And I think a big part of that is maybe not just luck, but also the fact that we talk about everything, maybe to the point that some people would think is like, you guys can shut up now. But we like to talk to each other. We talk about absolutely everything. And I think that's helped a lot. And it's been a strong component in the way that we have grown in the same direction. Yeah, you call it luck. I think it's just skill. Uh I mean, some of us are talented here. (laughs) No, I I think, you know, we were talking about this in the preparation for recording the session. And did we ever talk about money so directly when we were in our early 20s and first getting together? And we struggled to think of any memorable conversations that we had where we went deep into the weeds, but we talked about it tangentially. We saw what we did, what each other's habits were. We went to restaurants together. We went grocery shopping together. We saw where each other lived, what we drove, what we wear, uh, what we wore, you know, what what our approach was to taking on debt as students, right? We talked about some of those things in small ways. And when you add them up and you're as good at analysis as I am, right? I mean, that's, yeah. that's a skill game, baby. This isn't <laughs> luck. This isn't the lottery. This is This is true analytics right here. Well, but I don't think you really know how someone is going to behave when they get access to more money until they actually get access to more money, right? You can talk about it in the abstract all you want, but until that reality comes down from the sky and slaps you in the face, you don't know for sure. So I think when you and I started working higher paying jobs, there was no guarantee that one of us wasn't going to like develop a penchant for luxury cars or Fendi purses or whatever else might, you know, pique somebody's interest, any kind of luxury goods. So I I, I do think you're, you're right. I think there was some quote unquote skill in picking a partner who seemed to have the same attributes as us on the surface. But I think we have to acknowledge the luck involved because until you're in a situation you you're never entirely sure how you're going to react to it. That's true. I mean, if we look, if we do look a little bit more narrowly at our own evolution as we moved from college kids to me having a job and you being a law school student, to both of us having stable, productive careers that were, you know, paying us fair, good salaries and having relatively inexpensive tastes, there were opportunities where we had the chance for some lifestyle creep and we. I think each of us had our own little things that maybe we thought about, but we talked about them, right? We got on the same page, and if we didn't agree, then we kind of work through it like you would with anything as a couple. But I, I think it's sort of a taboo topic in some people's mind, I guess. and you, Or you just assume that you're on the same page and you don't talk about the details well enough. I don't know. I We definitely went through an evolution, right? There's a time when uh, I was interested in lake houses for some reason and there was a time when you were interested in a a fancier neighborhood and i think we both you know were a a sanity check on each other's interest and and decided that neither of those things were likely to make us happy and 
we we didn't go after them, right? Yeah, and those are both very good decisions in hindsight. Really happy. Thanks, thanks, <laughs> past Carla and Robert. Good job. Yeah, I think just talking to each other and picking a partner who is not just going to be like a a yes person to just say like yes to whatever crazy idea you might come up with, but like really you know tap the brakes and think things through and be slow and deliberate and careful about big decisions like that. That's a good person to have in your life. So yeah, look for I, that when picking a partner and then try to get there. Even if you didn't look for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I do think it's something that, um, couples can work towards. It's not something that you're born with it's something that you can definitely grow into. So you and I good at communicating about this stuff on the same page, Charlie and Muriel, not so much. If we go look at Bridget Fonda's character in Stanley Tucci, uh, I think his name was Eddie and Yvonne. Uh-huh. Also not so much on the same page. And they're separated, right? They're in the process of getting divorced. I think they were so broke that they didn't have the money to go finish the whole divorce proceedings. And our next clip finds Yvonne in court dealing with some debt that her estranged husband, Eddie, rung up. Ms. Biazzi, according to your records here, you owe $12,000 on your MasterCard. Your Honor, those charges were incurred by my ex-husband, Eddie Biazzi, the actor, after I threw him out. The bank is not aware of your divorce. Well, it's because we're not divorced yet, you know. But I told him, I said, you you have to tear up the credit cards, and he promised that he was... If you're not divorced yet, you're still liable for any and all debts your husband may have incurred. That's the law. But I am divorced in my heart, you know. I mean... And that's what counts. Legally, that's not what counts. I, my favorite thing about this clip is when she notes that Eddie Biasi is the Eddie actor. Eddie Biasi, the actor. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah, that's... Uh, that's we all know who he is, right? right? You should have seen him in Hollywood uh, you know, doing a lot of stuff. For sure. So a lot to talk about from this clip. I think the most critical point is what the judge is telling her that you're responsible for your partner's debt. If you guys are still legally married, I don't really care what's going on in your heart. You guys are legally responsible for each other's debt, assets, like you guys share things. That's just the way the law is. So this movie takes place in New York, which is not a community property state. So I don't know if the judge is right under New York law with their slightly different, weirder rules but probably he is right. And if you are living in America, it's a fairly safe bet to assume that you're going to be liable for your spouse's debts, which is another reason that it's really important to choose a partner carefully and communicate carefully about the financial decisions that you're each making. So you're Yvonne, you and Stanley Tucci, the villain, the actor, the villain, (laughs) uh, you break up, he moves out, you kick him out, whatever, you take away his key to your place, you're thinking about going through divorce proceedings. You've been dragging your feet on it. But what what should she have done to try to minimize her own personal liability? Are there things you can do? So this is such a tough question because... I'm going to my, take notes pretty carefully on this, Carla. <laughs> Please. My primary response to that is she needs to talk to a lawyer. I realize that's not very feasible for her because she is flat broke, right? She doesn't have any assets whatsoever. It seems like maybe what little she did have her crappy husband like went out and squandered but the best thing for you to do if you're in a situation like that is talk to a lawyer because depending on which state you're in there might be some maneuvers you could do to protect yourself 
But generally speaking, I would think the best thing to do is to close any kind of joint accounts that you guys had together, take out whatever portion they'll let you take out, any portion that should belong to you, and make sure he can't, he or she, whoever your partner, ex-partner is, make sure that they can't touch that and try to close down any credit cards that they might have access to. I was just going to say, you probably want to get them off of any sort of shared credit cards so that if they open up some credit, it's in their own name and maybe it is more clearly theirs than yours. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be a complicated process. Some divorces are very contentious. Contentious usually means expensive. It's just not going to be fun no matter how you slice it. But the best thing for her to do is really to talk to a good divorce attorney and try to take the best step she can for the specific state that she's in. So my favorite part of this whole divorce scene, other than the actor line that gets tossed out there, is the way that the judge calls her bankrupt, right? So he, it's like he went to Michael's that morning and got a stamp and a little pad, (laughs) marked it in there, and then bam, slams it down on the paper that says bankrupt. The only like worse version of a bankruptcy proceeding I've seen on TV was in the office when Michael Scott (laughs) yells that he declares bankruptcy. Um, but But at least there was Oscar there to point out how ridiculous that was. There's no one in this movie to be like, uh, that's not how bankruptcy works. Yeah, just because you're in a courtroom like, doesn't mean you're portraying bankruptcy accurately. Yeah, the judge, you don't just go talk to the judge for the first time about your uh, Eddie Biasi, the actor's debts that are under your name. And uh, therefore, if, well, if you can't pay, you're bankrupt. Here you go. Done. Settled. Move on. Yeah. Sadly, it is much more complicated than that. I wish our legal system was way less complicated than it is, but we are where we are. So yeah, she would have had to jump through a lot more hoops and take a lot more steps in order to be declared officially bankrupt with all the benefits that come with being bankrupt, which generally speaking, credit card debt is dischargeable in bankruptcy. So she should be getting, I mean, bankruptcy exists because people need it, right? Like it does provide people with a lot of benefits. We always think of it as like a terrible thing and it can be, and it really is a huge negative mark on your credit, but it also comes with benefits. Like you wouldn't do it if there weren't benefits. Well, I suspect in a future episode of Pennies and Popcorn, we will talk about programs that go way more into bankruptcy and it's much more relevant. Another funny thing though about the court system that happens in this in this movie is, so Yvonne and Eddie have this debt together that Eddie rings up and it is somehow Yvonne's responsibility or their shared responsibility. Later in the movie, Muriel and Charlie have this winning lottery ticket and Muriel is basically saying 100% of that lottery ticket should be hers. And they're going through some sort of proceeding about this. The marital debt is evenly split, but the marital lottery winnings aren't? That seems pretty messed up. Yeah, there are just like a couple of legal problems with this film. Nothing about the court proceedings that we see make any real sense. <laughs> they're just totally fabricated to keep the plot moving along in a nice chipper clip. But they don't actually reflect reality at all. Well, let's keep the plot of this episode moving along at a chipper clip because okay. I think our <laughs> next section is going to be the meat of the movie, right? It's all about the scene where Nicolas Cage has to leave in a hurry, doesn't have enough money to give a tip, and he offers to give this waitress half of his lottery winnings that he doesn't know about. You know, it's, it's before they've announced the winning numbers or he'll come back and give her a double tip the next day. 
And, you know, she's like, yeah, whatever, dude. Um, I'm never going to see you again. Just having a terrible day. She'd just been, declared the judge has bankrupt. just declared her bankrupt. Yeah. So um, let's jump to the next clip where Nicolas Cage has won the lottery and does come back to talk to her. About our little agreement. Huh? Double the tip or half of what I won in the lottery. That agreement. How about we make it your choice? Door number one, double the tip. Door number two, half of what I won in the lottery. My choice. Okay. <clears throat> Whatever. I'll take door number two. I'll take half of the lottery. Pay up. For sure. Positive. I was hoping you'd say that. I'll bet you were. Better luck next time, right? Oh, actually, we were, uh, <laughs> we were pretty lucky. Oh, really? Did you win something? We won something. All right. What? We won something? What did we win? $4 million. So much to talk about. So first question, should Yvonne have picked door number one or door number two? What do you think she should have gone with? Lottery winnings or tip? Well, if you were going to spend your income on lottery tickets, I suppose getting a lottery winning is a reasonable thing to do. But if that was not your plan, you know, if you're bankrupt and you're struggling financially maybe take the guaranteed payday as you know compensation for your work i mean she she is a tipped worker right she's dependent on tips to provide a sufficient wage so she shouldn't just go take that if she doesn't go take a couple bucks after every shift and buy lottery tickets which i would highly discourage her from doing um duh open and shut Take the guaranteed tip. It's a double tip. It's a fantastic tip is what he's offering her. Well, so the bill from their little encounter yesterday was $2. So the tip that we're talking about here is presumably what? Like 30 cents if he's giving her a 15% tip. Now, he seems like a super nice guy. And I think he felt bad that their ticket was so small. They intended to stay and like order more than just coffee, but they got interrupted. They got like a police call. They had to go. So maybe he was going to give her like five bucks. I don't know. Maybe he was going to give her like more than what the actual bill was. But yeah, in general, I would agree with you that it makes way more sense to take guaranteed money. There's a butt coming. I can feel this butt coming. There is definitely a butt coming. I feel like in this particular situation... You have a lot more information that gives you a substantial edge as opposed to just like your general odds of winning the lottery. This guy has come in there. He seems really nice. And he just, I don't know, like you get body language reads and he seems like he kind of wants to tell her something. Also, just the fact that he gives her a choice. Like, why wouldn't he just come in there and say, sorry, I didn't win anything you know, here's your tip from yesterday. Like you have a lot of information here that should lead you to believe that maybe picking half the lottery winnings is a better choice, especially if it's only going to cost you like 30 cents to find out what's behind door number two. So maybe it's not the most mathematically sound decision, but being a human being and reading the context of the situation, I would 1000% have done what she did. Oh, so now you're the skilled analyst. (laughs) So... Let's talk about this lottery, okay? Yeah. Because I, that is what like just got to me watching this whole movie. Okay. 
there's a $64 million jackpot at stake in this lottery. And there are 16 winners. Yeah. Okay, this is the New York State Lottery, and there are 16 different winners. So they end up winning $4 million. They get their 1 16th share of the $64 million prize. And you're like, well, gosh, Robert, that's pretty weird. 16 people won the lottery. The odds of this must be, you know, like like one in eight million or something like that for winning the lottery. No, heck no. Okay, it's a six number lottery. They run out the numbers. Uh, the The lowest number we hear is a six. So we know that they accept one digit numbers. And the highest number we hear is 84. I'm guessing this is like a one to 99 kind of lottery number, but we'll just assume it's a one to 84 lottery. Okay. 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 Your odds of picking six numbers that win this lottery are like one in 400 million. <laughs> okay. For there to be 16 winners, <laughs> uh, on average, you would have expected like six and a half billion tickets to have been sold, assuming that all of the tickets were independently selected and, you know, there were truly random selections and there wasn't some sort of bias in the numbers. There probably was. But nevertheless, six and a half billion tickets sold for a lottery that has a top prize of $64 million? <laughs> Who the hell's playing that garbage lottery? Yeah, that's a really good point. Right? That's just, it's the dumbest lottery I've ever heard of. Like, well, you're... No, it's maybe the second tier prize is really, really good. Like if you get five out of the six numbers, you get a ton of money and they're not trying to give a huge jackpot. I don't know. But this seems <laughs> absurd. Like the, couldn't they have done the math on this? It wasn't that hard. Like lotteries existed back then. They were able to build a Powerball, a Mega Millions. I don't know what all the lotteries were in 1994 that existed. But come on, people. Couldn't the producers get this right? Oh, man. Somebody has pushed Robert's math button and he is just upset about it. I am. I am. I really am. And, you know, so if you know that this lottery is this much of a garbage lottery odds kind of setup sort of thing, you should probably be like, eh, I don't know, man. I don't, I don't want my share of the lottery ticket. What could this possibly be? Yeah. Well, those are really good numbers, and I really appreciate where you're coming from with that. I still stand by my decision if I were in her shoes. Well, one, you have to remember, she's probably she doesn't have all this information about the odds of the lottery. She doesn't know how many people won. She doesn't know any of that. So she, I think, is still justified in making the call that she makes. Oh, so you knew in her heart, just like she was divorced in her heart. You'd been able to read the situation. Uh, you could just tell, huh? By good old Nikki Cage coming with that money. I'm just saying if somebody comes up to you and they look kind of excited, and they are asking you a question in a context where they wouldn't actually have to like pose it that way. Just the whole like tenor of the situation. I think it gives you a lot of extra information that gives you a substantial edge. Well, all right. If we're, so uh, I continue to believe that lotteries are attacks on people who are bad at math or just a redistribution thing where the government or the lottery administrator takes on a portion of it. And, yeah. you know, in this case, it is a huge fraction that they're taking on uh, to fund whatever it is that they're doing with the lottery. But let's set aside whether or not she should have taken the money and go back to the question that kind of comes up before this should he have offered this ticket after he won? Like, let's talk about the ethics, the legal requirements, right? So the day before, he's in there with his cop buddy, his partner, and they get a call. They have to leave. He doesn't have enough money to tip on this $2 bill and says, I'll split my lottery winnings with you or come back and give you a double tip tomorrow. He wins. Yeah. Surprise. 
Yep. What should he do then? Should he just like never go see this person again? Should he go offer to give her a portion of the winnings, half the winnings? What, what's the right thing here? And what is he obligated to do? Well, as Nicholas Cage says, a promise is a promise. And he promised her he was going to come back and give her half the lottery winnings or the tip. I will say, I don't think he promised her, like, I'll give you whichever one's bigger. So maybe he's not like officially obligated. I mean, there's nothing official about this. This is all like a moral decision, which we're going to talk about in a second, whether he has any legal obligations. But just from a purely moral standpoint, I think he probably did the right thing. I would have a hard time living with myself afterwards. I would just constantly think about that. The sequence of events that played out on that day where you won the lottery, you're going to remember that day for a really long time and you're going to feel like dirt for not going and giving her the share that you promised. I agree. I think it would just make you feel crummy for the rest of your life that you promised this woman who you know was like kind of in need, was in a little bit of a tough life situation, and you just kept this extra money for yourself. So we should note, he says he won $4 million. The movie takes place in 1994. That was like roughly double back then. Like in today's dollars, that would be about eight million. So he would have been okay. offering her about four in 2022 dollars. Well, let's just keep, let's just talk in 1994 dollars yeah, though for simplicity. Yeah, that's fair. But I just want people to have like some context, some of, scale. Yeah, of what it would really mean today. So I mean, I don't know. It takes a lot of fortitude to say goodbye to two million dollars. Um, that had $4 million worth of buying power back in 1994. I, that takes a lot, a lot of character to do. But on the flip side, you also have $4 million to yourself, right? Like you are walking away with a good chunk of money. So I, I think it would be even harder if you were talking about like smaller amounts of money, right? There's a scale. Like if you won 50 bucks, you probably wouldn't have that hard of a time parting with 25 of it. But if he'd won like, I don't know, let's say $750,000, like that is a huge life-changing sum of money, but it's not such a crazy astronomical sum that you're going to feel probably super secure never working again. You know, maybe you can buy a house with it and like put something towards your retirement, but it's not going to be like a significant lifestyle changer for the rest of your life. So if it's some, a sum like that, you're probably going to have an even harder time. That's a good point. There's a, I think there's a middle range where it's harder to part with the money. Yeah. So he, he is in kind of a, a pretty good spot. I think he's got enough to where they could feel pretty comfortable with the amount that they won and let her feel really comfortable with the amount that she won. Like everyone could walk away happy here. So I think it would be easier for me to to give it away knowing that like, hey, we're going to be in great shape too. Yeah, I think a promise is a promise. And if, if you really meant that and you said it, and he said, we're partners in this, I, I think he's doing the right thing. Okay, so what about the legal implications, right? I mean, is this a contract? If you just say, I promise to give you money, do I actually, like, did my pinky swear count? Does it mean anything? Pinky swears do not count. <laughs> this is like... Uh, Yvonne saying she's divorced in her heart, basically. Like, the law doesn't really care about you saying the words, I promise. There's no magic to those words. There's no magic to pinky swears. So in your very first year of law school, everyone has to take a course called Contracts, and they teach you the basic building blocks of a contract are three things. Someone makes an offer, 
the other person accepts it. And then the third thing, which is really critical, is called consideration, which is a trickier term. Everyone understands what offer and acceptance means, right? But consideration means that there is something being given up in consideration for another thing. So like super basic example of this, Robert, I would like to buy your pen. That's my offer to you. Would you sell me your pen for $1? That is the consideration that I am offering you. Now it's up to you whether you would like to accept my offer or not. Would you? Um, I mean, I thought we talked about being bound as spouses for the financial choices of each other. That's true. That's my goddamn pen. You can't sell it to me. It belongs to me already. (laughs) All right. (laughs) But if we were not married, I could make you an offer for your pen that you had bought with your money. So that is the basic gist of what a contract is. Offer, acceptance, consideration. So no consideration here, right? He offers her the money. She accepts the money. Well, I don't even think we clearly have acceptance from her because she kind of just shrugs it off. Right, but fundamentally, like, it doesn't even matter whether she accepted it or not. It's just a gift that he's offering her. Yeah, for sure it's a gift. There is no consideration. He says that he's going to give this to her as a tip, which, you know, tip... The formal word for that is gratuity. It is gratuitous. You do not have to give She's it. She's already performed the services. It's not as though he's offering this as a tip in advance. Either. Yeah. Yeah. She is yeah. not performing the service of providing him with coffee, like serving him coffee in consideration for this promise. He makes it after the fact. And he's like adding it as a bonus. Tips in America are just bonuses, right? Like no one can ever come sue you for not having given a tip. It makes you kind of a shit person and everyone should tip in America, but like it's not required. There's, there's no law that says you have to do it. So it is just completely out of the goodness of his heart. It is a pure gratuity and he is not legally bound to give it to her. Okay. So it's a gift. And I think that's one thing that people kind of screw up on lottery stuff. There's plenty of times when you, you know, you win the big lottery and you think, okay, well, I'm just going to give like a huge chunk of this to my family. But there are gift tax implications as well, right? Yeah. So the gift tax is something that like 99.9% of Americans do not have to worry about. So it's something that most people don't know about because it just doesn't affect them. But yeah, if you give away too much money, you as the gift giver, not the recipient, but the person giving the money, you are taxed on giving that money away. So the point uh, that is important to know. I think a lot of people don't understand that. If you get money as a gift, you're not responsible for paying taxes on a gift. Yeah, it, gifts it comes are from the giver, not yeah. the not the the recipient. Yeah. So to understand why, I think it really helps to know like what the purpose of a gift tax is. So the gift tax is tied very closely to the estate tax, which is the tax you pay on your estate when you die. So the estate tax exists. There are ridiculously huge exemptions for it. You have to have an insanely large estate before it even becomes a factor. But if you are one of the insanely lucky few who's going to have a big enough estate to be worried about this kind of thing, one thing you might do to get around the estate tax, I'm just going to give away all of my money to my kids or my dog or you know, my friends and my extended family before I die. And then bada bing, bada boom, there won't be any estate tax. Well, the gift tax is basically the government's way of saying, "Mm, that's not a good idea. We actually want to tax that money that you're passing on 
Like the estate tax exists for a reason. We want to get our hands on that money and you can't just get around it by giving it away before you die. One important side note to make, because a lot of people are confused about the death tax and other kind of awful descriptions of what the estate tax is. There are huge exemptions. Like the moment, I think it's a $12 million estate tax exemption. So uh, and if you're a couple, each of you get that. Uh, And there's no estate tax between transfers from one spouse to the other. So effectively, it's a $24 million combined exemption. Exactly. So many people are concerned about their estate that might be a few hundred thousand dollars and what the effects are for that going to somebody else when they die. And the answer is there aren't any. So the gift tax, it is also subject to this insanely huge exemption that is identical to the estate tax. So in today... We've got about a $12 million gift tax exemption. So you are free to give away like $12 million of your wealth while you are alive and not pay any gift taxes on it. Basically, all you have to do is file some paperwork if you're giving away really big gifts while you're still alive. Yeah, I think you're required to record any gifts greater than $16,000 in 2022. Correct. Yeah, and that excludes gifts of tuition or gifts of like paying off medical debt, but it's it's more traditional gifts above yeah. that amount. You just and have to record it. Charitable gifts are a totally different animal. They do not apply to anything that we've been talking about. This is more like a gift like we see in the movie of just one human being to another human being, related or not. Yeah. So for purposes of the movie, which takes place in 1994... The gift tax exemption back then was not $12 million like it is today. It was actually only $600,000. So if Nicolas Cage had been giving Bridget Fonda $2 million, he's going to have to file a gift tax return. And more importantly, he's actually going to have to pay some gift tax because he's well above that. $600,000 $600,000 gift tax exemption. Well, he would have had to pay about 40% taxes on the $4 million that they won, which means he's down in the, you know, let's call it two and a half million after you figure out some, some state tax as well. So he's going to give her like one and a quarter million if they, if they give her half. And then he and Rosie Perez should have a $600,000 exemption each. So maybe it's not too bad on the estate tax, but there's no, or a gift tax, excuse me, but there's no assessment in the movie it's just sort of like yeah. it doesn't seem like taxes are real in the yeah, movie taxes world. do not exist and it could happen to you universe they're just flat not acknowledged at all they claim that they won four million dollars and then swish and like they have four million dollars in total no tax implications whatsoever yeah okay so they win the money and they are now part of the lottery winning I don't know if I, we should call it high society, but like the lottery society. And they get invited on this fancy boat ride in the harbor. And on that, uh, Muriel and, and Charlie meet some really cool guy who has, has won the lottery and done a lot with it. Yeah, he's super awesome. Let's listen to him. I won $55 million and increased my net worth by 40% through a variety of well-chosen mutual funds. 40%? Virtually no risk. SNL funds, biotech funds, gold funds, they were a disaster. Stay away from those. Oh, I will. What do you think about treasury bills? Well, they're for little old ladies, which you certainly are not. <laughs> I'm too, Tiger. So, what do you think of this guy's investment strategy? 
Well, I mean, he increased his net worth by 40% with no risk. So surely he's a, he's an investing savant. So I do not... First of all, I really want to know over what time horizon he increased his net worth by 40%. Because over a long time horizon, that is not at all impressive. In fact, it might be downright terrible if we're talking about a long enough time horizon. And, you know, you always have to compare things to what, like, the average stock market return was. So I want to know what was the average market return like over this time period that he's claiming to have gotten 40% because it could be pretty bad compared to the market returns. So I like that he's investing in mutual funds. I think that is a a reasonable choice to do with your money. Um, I wouldn't have done whatever sort of targeted sector funds that he's talking about, which are probably actively managed and have a pretty big expense ratio. I would have recommended uh, index funds, although in 1994, it may have been a lot harder to get access to some of those products. You may be, you know, if you went to a brokerage outfit, you, you probably would have had a harder time finding the right folks. So we're not going to get too far into the weeds here on index funds versus mutual funds and why we prefer index funds as a passive investment strategy. But I think the most important thing to take away from this guy is that phrase that he uses, almost no risk involved. Because it's, it's just false advertising, right? When somebody claims that they've made a large return with virtually no risk, they're just straight up lying to you. If you're making that big of a return, and again, 40% may not be that big. I mean, if you made it in a month, that's that's awesome. You but, probably shouldn't be taking anybody's risk assessment advice who won $55 million playing the lottery. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Especially this particular lottery, which apparently pays you like pennies on the dollar even when you win big. But in any event, yeah, this guy seems to be peddling these quote-unquote, you know, get-rich-fast, no-risk-involved kind of schemes, which just flat don't exist. You can get lucky with some investments, right? You can invest in something like Facebook when it is just starting out and you buy it for like a buck a share. I mean, yeah, of course people get insanely lucky, but... By doing that, they are also taking on enormous risk because for every one Facebook, there are thousands of, you've never heard of this company names because they just completely tanked and went nowhere. So you are always taking on risk when you are investing in one particular company, especially even if you're just investing in like one type of company, like biotech or whatever he he mentions in this clip is something to, to stay away from whatever other type of sector he is ultimately going to recommend, it's going to be fairly narrow, which is inherently risky. When we watch the movie, what kind of dawned on me at this point is oftentimes lottery winnings aren't paid out as a lump sum. They're often annuities. And I thought it was just kind of funny. They're talking about what they're doing with their money and, and you know his amount that he won. But if they were able to know exactly what they won, like their share of the $64 million jackpot was $4 million. It, with most lottery systems today, when you win a jackpot, you don't get that amount of money, whatever the advertised jackpot is, immediately. It is paid out in an annuity over 20 to 30 years. That's one option if you want the exact amount that has been published as the jackpot amount. Or you can take some payout up front that's, you know, often, I don't know, 40 to 60% of the 
a jackpot amount as a lump sum payout that you can have um, up front. So I don't know what they did here. It seems like the movie like does it, it just sort of ignores that. I think they had a big check for $4 million in front of them. And yeah. it seemed like they had access to the money because Nicolas Cage and Bridget Fonda did all kinds of goofy things with it. So like Nicolas Cage, Bridget Fonda bought her restaurant where she was a, ra- a waitress. Uh, Nicolas Cage rented out Yankee Stadium for a day and bought a bunch of the neighborhood kids to go play like real baseball on the field. They bought a bunch of people's subway fares. Uh, Rosie Perez bought a bunch of expensive furs and clothing and went on a huge shopping binge. And remodeled their apartment. Oh, yeah. Major remodel of their apartment in Queens. So like they were blowing through money like they had it all up front. But I guess the question that I wanted to ask, the more interesting question is, you know, forget what they did in the movie. What should you do if you win a decent sized lottery? Should you sign up for the lump sum and get it all up front? Or should you accept the annuity? Usually it's a, a gradually escalating payment in those annuities that totals up to the amount of the jackpot. What do you think? I think it depends on what kind of person you are. Because if you take the lump sum and you invest it pretty wisely, you will probably come out better in the long run than if you had taken the annuity. But if you're not someone who you feel like you can trust yourself to let the money sit and grow and just take like a small piece of it every year to live on, then you're probably much better off taking the annuity. I think the vast majority of people would be way better off with the annuity. That said, I think the vast majority of lottery winners don't. I think they want the lump sum. They want access to the money right now. They feel like they can take it, invest it and do more with it. But in the reality, many of them will just end up spending it. Yeah. It takes a lot of fortitude to not go spend it up like crazy and again like it depends on who you are as a person depends on what your background is depends on what kind of needs you have in life like you could be in a situation where you really need to buy like a better place to live that's a main priority for you maybe you have a lot of debt that you have to pay off so there could be situations where i think taking the lump sum would be better but yeah, it usually lottery winnings are at least in the double digit millions of dollars, if not triple digits, right? So when you win one of those jackpots, your annuity is going to be half a million or more if it's a really small jackpot, potentially, you know, $10 million a year or more. You can pay off a lot of debt or upgrade your living situation pretty quickly. Yeah. With that kind of funding. That's true. Yeah, it definitely depends on how much you've won. So I, I think it's a question where you need to step back and ask yourself, like, do I have the discipline to manage this money correctly? Do I have the skills with this life changing amount of money in my hands right now to go make good choices? Or should I bet on like developing those skills over time and keeping the money from myself? Yeah. I also think it would be a good idea to sit down and do some math and try to figure out what the tax implications are going to be. I don't think they're going to change that much if you're a substantial lottery winner, right? You're you're going to hit the the upper limit of the tax brackets pretty quickly, right? Unless there's a serious change to our tax structure. I guess that's one benefit for getting your money up front. Uh, you're less likely to be stuck with higher tax rates in the future or tax rules that are more punitive to people who are, are higher earners. You can decide whether you like the tax rates now relative to what they have been in the past and what you estimate they'll be in the future. But if you're going to do that kind of math, you probably weren't buying a lottery ticket in the first place. I don't know. I mean, I don't think there's 
anything terribly, terribly wrong with doing it every once in a blue moon for fun, just for funsies, you know, why not every now and then? But yeah, as the really tragic thing about the lottery is that the largest percentage of people who play, play a lot. That's a substantial portion of your budget if you're doing it like on a daily or weekly basis. So whether you get the annuity or you take the lump sum, if you win a big lottery jackpot, it is a life-altering sum of money, and that influences the way people around you behave. Mm -hmm. Our final clip that we're going to talk about from the show is Nicolas Cage's uh, police partner asking him, "What? Uh, how's this affecting your life? So when you retire? I'm not retiring. Yeah, right. I'm not retiring. Get hey, off my case. where's that sense of humor, huh? <laughs> what would you do? Three in the morning, a guy calls, says he's holding a luger to his head, his life is in ruins. Unless you give him a thousand bucks, he's pulling the trigger. If he called me at three o'clock in the morning, I'd tell him to go ahead. That really happened? Last night. I don't know. This lottery thing, it's from one day to the next, it's like you become this other person. It's just weird. Oh, I feel bad for you, baby. Hey, I'm not bad mouthing it, all right? I'm just saying it's an adjustment. So you win the lottery. Should you retire? I feel like that's the headline we see whenever there's a big group of people at some workplace that bought in together, pooled their money, and then they win. But should Nicolas Cage retire? What do you think? I definitely think he should not because he loves his job. He seems to get so much value out of his role in the community and the way that he helps people, this great relationship he has with his partner, who seems to be someone who really values his sleep by his comment in the clip, which I completely relate to. I feel you, man. But yeah, I think he gets a ton out of his job. He seems so happy in life before he wins the lottery. And I don't think he should jeopardize that happiness by walking away from something that gives him so much fulfillment. So yeah, for him specifically, no, I don't think so. Yeah, this is one of the things that I do like about the financial independence community, right? It's all about getting enough money to where you have the ability to make whatever choices you want to make and they're not driven based on, you know, whether or not you can afford your next meal or your rent or your retirement or whatever, right? Your, your choices are driven by what you want out of life and what brings you the most satisfaction. And I, yeah, it's, you're totally right. Nicholas Cage here seems to love what he's doing. There are plenty of people who don't love what they're doing. And I think this is a good opportunity for them to step back and say, yeah, let me step away and see what I want to do. But I have to imagine if, um, as our, as our sister podcast, Mile High Fi talks about, as, as Carl often says, if you're going to sit around on the couch and eat Cheetos, you're not going to be very happy for very long. Yeah. So I, I think, yeah, if you're going to step away and retire, you, you need to have a real plan for what you're going to do with your time. If you're Nicholas Cage's age here, I, I don't think he's going to be very happy for very long. I, th I think he'll feel a little bit unfulfilled. Yeah. I mean, if you're lucky enough that you've already found something, that you get up in the morning and are really excited to go do, don't let that go just because you have an influx of money into your life. I think that's a crazy thing to do. That being said, in the financial independence community, I think working towards having financial independence, even if you do love your job, is a really amazing thing to do. Because for someone like Nicolas Cage in the movie, there's no doubt that he's in a way better position now that he's won this lottery money he can keep working, he can keep, you know, living the life that he's been so happy to live, but he can make some minor improvements maybe. And he's got this huge backstop in life now, right? Like if disaster strikes, he's going to be more prepared for that. If he gets like some terrible 
new boss who takes over like the police precinct where he works, he can just say, peace out, I'm going to go find someplace else to work or do nothing at all. Like having financial independence is the ultimate superpower, I think. And so it's a great thing to work for, even if you are someone who loves your job. But that doesn't mean you should quit it. Yeah, I mean, he could be, he could give uh, Rosie Perez all the things she wanted in that initial clip and still be a clean, good cop. So there you go. Yeah. The other thing that they talk about in this is some, effectively a terrorist, right? Some guy calls him in the middle of the night and threatens to do something horrible if he doesn't give him money. I'm sure if you become famous, there are strangers who may reach out, but more often you're probably going to deal with your you know, people who you know asking mm-hmm. about money and asking uh, for, for gifts or handouts or whatever. What? How do you handle that when you get that sudden influx of, of wealth? I think it would just be the hardest thing in the world. And, you know, I was joking about the guy making the, the quip about, you know, if he called at 3 a.m., I'd tell him to do it because he values sleep and so do I. But, I mean, in reality, if you've got people who are, desperate and they're looking to you to be their savior, I think that would be a very, very difficult thing to deal with. I don't think that I would do it because I wouldn't want to just encourage that kind of behavior, right? Um, But I don't know. It would be really, really hard. I think probably what I would do is, you know, call some kind of a, a suicide hotline and try to get them on the phone with this guy and make sure that he was going to be okay and maybe I donate a thousand dollars to a suicide hotline to make sure that they're well funded and that they're ready and able to help people. But I don't know. For this random guy to call in the middle of the night like that, I, I don't think I would do it. I don't think you can be beholden to people who are asking for whatever you have, what, no matter how you've earned it, whether you've earned it through business success, you were a, an athlete, a celebrity, you won a lottery. Like, I, I just don't think you can feel obligated to give something to random strangers who really I, I call him a terrorist because that's what he's doing right he's he's basically holding you hostage and making you either feel horrible about whatever happens to him in the end or forcing you to give up some money in order to to protect your conscience that's that's despicable yeah it's not a good thing and I'm sure you know this hypothetical person in the movie is dealing with a really hard times himself and well, you maybe, know. who knows maybe they're just a scammer yeah, that's always possible, for sure. I uh, So what about what about the people you know? So it would be so wonderful to win or come into in any way shape or form a huge sum of money that was way more than you needed to live a comfortable life and be able to share that with people that you love and let them, you know, have a backstop in life too. Like we're saying it's one of the best things you can have in life. And if you could share that with others, I think it's amazing. But I think you have to make sure that you're going to be okay first. I think ultimately having like one human being in the world who is happy and safe and comfortable is a great thing for planet Earth. So if you are creating one of those and it happens to be yourself, I think that's a really powerful and good thing to work towards. And if you have enough left over after doing that to spread it around, then I think that's great. I think if people are coming to you and asking for money, 
if they're genuinely your friend, if they're generally a love, if, if they're, if they're truly a genuinely a loved one, you can tell them no, right? I think you have the ability to analyze their situation, to think about it critically, to think about the effect on you. Um, you know, is, is this, is it the right thing to do with your resources to go help them out? And if they can't tolerate you saying that you're unwilling to, to do whatever they're asking for, if it's helping them start a business or, you know, doing something that you don't think is, is the right thing to do, they're not that good of a friend and it's okay to, to move on from them, in my opinion. I think this happens to people a lot, though, when you come into a lot of money as a surprise. There are many people who would like to get in on that action. And if they can't, if they can't take a mature perspective, then they're probably not right for you. Yeah, I think that's a good way to think about it. The people who really have your best interests at heart are not going to put you in an uncomfortable situation and ask you for something that you're either not able to give or that, you know, you really shouldn't give. So if you're thinking about playing the lottery, my advice is to do the math. Make sure you don't play this horrible lottery. Um, (laughs) I I would instead encourage you to just go watch a 90s rom-com. Just make sure it's not this one. (laughs) Yeah, it definitely has its flaws, but hopefully this gave us a chance to talk about some really interesting money stuff. Hope you guys learned a little bit about the gift tax and tax implications in general. And yeah, we really hope you don't go buy lottery tickets because no more than once a year. That's my admonishment. There you go. I'll, I'll bless it and it's once a year. It's a fun little side diversion, but that's my limit. All right. Okay, guys. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next time. Take care.